Well, this is a time of year where many people are greeting each other or saying goodbye to one another, people that they don't even know, people that perhaps are interacting with in businesses or stores or restaurants with phrases like, Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas. These phrases are common in culture. Uh, sometimes people don't want to be religiously specific with the word like Merry Christmas because of people's various religious views, and so they pick something more generic like Happy Holidays. Well, I also think it's a bit funny because for those of you who don't know, holiday it comes from the word holy day. So whether we're referring to a Jewish holy day of Hanukkah or we're referring to a Christmas holy day of Christmas or other days, it's referring to there's still a religious association. Some people instead want to strip it even more and say something like season greetings. At that point, I'm not sure what you're even telling me. You're wishing me a happy spring to come, a winter that's up here? I'm not sure. In Miami, we don't really have seasons. So it seems inappropriate to say that to anybody. Just one season and a greeting for the whole year. But what I want you to consider with these phrases is not the holiday or the Christmas, but the, the word that goes before. Words like happy or merry. These words seem culturally appropriate, but personally perhaps inappropriate. Because for some people, this is a time of year that feels anything but happy. Anything but merry. The truth is that this time of year, sometimes it feels like it's like a bright light is being turned on, but otherwise has been present, but not always felt as obvious. And that is a season of discouragement. A season of hopelessness. Perhaps for some people, this is their first Christmas since their mom passed away, since their spouse has died, since they've gone through a difficult divorce, since their last child, or maybe their only child, moved out of the house and is not home for Christmas, since their sibling was tragically killed in an automobile accident this past year, since they've lost their job and this Christmas is not like last Christmas. Since they've been diagnosed this past year with a life-ending disease. But they're not likely to share that with you. They're not likely to say in response to your Merry Christmas, Oh, it's not that merry for me, just so you know. And here's why. Instead, they'll typically respond culturally and appropriately, Well, Merry Christmas to you. But is that what they mean? Is that how they feel? The truth is, many people at this time of year feel pronounced in their sadness, in their loneliness, in their hurting, and their hopelessness. And it's not because it's just because it's Christmas. The, the truth is, for some people, this is a channel that their life feels like it's been stuck on for months now. You don't need Christmas to feel this way. You know, like that remote control that you have, and you, it's, the battery's kind of dying low, and you go to change a channel, and you just can't change it? People sometimes feel like their life is like that. They're in, a, they're in a season, they're going through a situation, they feel like no matter what I do to change, it's just not changing. They're disappointed at best. Depressed and despairing at worst. I want to talk about that. For some people who feel this way, it comes so pronounced, 
and so overwhelming, they can think of no other way to live except to not live, and they want to kill themselves. Suicide becomes a real tangible thought for such people. For other people, it's not so much that they'll take action like that, that's that drastic, but they'll choose to grit their teeth, bear it as best as possible, while the rest of us, while the rest of us in public, while they slowly deteriorate on the inside, feeling like they're essentially living two separate lives. One with the rest of us, and one privately with themselves. Well, here's the question. Are you such an individual? Am I describing your story tonight? It's likely that such an individual would not necessarily go public with that perspective. Because how they feel, and sometimes maybe the embarrassment of that or just the difficulty of being honest about that. Perhaps that might not be true for many of you here, but here's what I bet is true for many of you here, is that there are people like that in your life right now, some of which you maybe know, others of which you maybe do not know are living like that. Coworkers, people you'll share meals with this coming week, people that you're living next to in your shared apartments, this is actually happening around us. And the question is, what would you say to such people? What words can ex communicate and express and acknowledge both their position and their difficulty and their pain and their suffering and yet give them an invitation to true hope? Well, surprisingly, it's found in the pages of Luke, a writing that seems outdated and antiquated and unrelated to any life today, but nevertheless is surprisingly applicable and important today. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you're just joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a four-part, with this being the fourth and final installment, of a series on the implications of the Incarnation. And we're talking about the reality of fallen condition. That life is not perfect. That there is a great divide from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God was saying it is good to the reality of what we live in today. And talking about how something like Joy to the World, a, a song that we just sang that this year is the 300th anniversary of that song, that that song actually speaks about truth that is even 1,700 years older than that. And it's found here, actually, in a birth announcement. It's not like any that we would normally think of. Tell you think about birth announcements with the, the gender reveal and all of the pomp and circumstance that we typically associate today with kids being announced. Let's look at the story for ourselves. Luke chapter 1. Start with me in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, 
His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And let me just ask you to stop right there and track this with me, because this is actually just a setup to our text for this evening, which is in the verses that are about to follow. But I want you to have a sense of what's happening here. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you're familiar with the story. If you're not, let me just give you a, a brief summary of what's taking place here in the story. You basically have an older couple. He is a priest who is offering sacrifice earlier in the temple. He, he is, you know, he's a religiously accomplished man, and he's known him and his wife as being godly. It describes this earlier in chapter 1. An angel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. He is so overwhelmed and scared by this angel who's appeared while he's in the temple. And in such disbelief, the angel's like, well, because you did not believe, you're going to not be able to talk until he comes. And then Elizabeth, who is an older woman, gets pregnant. And this is how they kind of know if God was with this woman, because like, what's the chances of that? Very unlikely that would take place. And apparently, Zechariah is not only uh, mute and that he can't talk, he's deaf. Because you'll notice there what it says that they made signs to him to try to get him to communicate to him, hey, what do you want your name of your kid to be? Now, let me tell you what's happening here. Typically, tradition would be the way you would name a child is after the child's father or grandfather. And because this child is so exceptional, being born to them later in their life, they just assume Zechariah is going to name him Junior. And so it's like, so you obviously want Zechariah. And she's like, no, he's going to be John. And I'm like, okay, that's clearly wrong. So they all ask John, and they get out this tablet, and basically it'd be like a piece of wood with some wax on it. And he writes on there, his name's going to be John. And they're like, oh my goodness. John, it's going to be. Well, that gets us to now when Zechariah does speak. Here's what I want us to see is what now is going to take place in verses 67 through verse 79. Because it's within these verses that we're going to learn five lessons about hope. Now, I want you to think of these lessons not only because historically what Zechariah is saying, but also because of presently what we should be thinking and saying ourselves. Because now Zechariah, who now can talk, he's been quiet for nine months, he's now going to talk about the birth of his son. He has something to say that's much more important than just about his son. These five lessons about hope, I'll introduce them to you one at a time. First of all, Zechariah teaches hope has a source. Hope has a source. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, it's a practice of mine. Um, in the mornings, Monday through Friday, I ride my bike in the morning, unless it rains, and then I drive my car, but I normally, you know, ride my bike in the morning, every morning at about 5.30 to go work out. And uh, I subscribe to uh, this app, Blinkist, and Blinkist is basically like an executive book summary app. 
So you basically take major books and they distill them down to about 15, 20 minutes. And so every day I listen to a different book. Uh, and my, my books range from anything from science to history to biography. Well, a book I was listening to that, uh, two weeks ago was on the history of water. You're like, really? That's how desperate times have gotten for you, Eric? At 5.30 in the morning, you listen to a book on the history of water? Friends, don't judge me, and don't judge it, because it was fascinating. But in the book about water, it's talking about, you know, today, we just assume water as being the drink everybody wants to drink. But that is actually not true in human history, that a lot of people did not want to drink water, for a variety of reasons. It wasn't just because of cleanliness. It's because of what would be associated with sort of even class, like who would drink water and who would not drink water. And it goes on to say a number of fascinating things, some of which I think we should probably hear. So, for example, like, you know, just as a little curious side fact, bottled water industry is the highest gross margin of any market. It, it, just to give you a sense, for $1.50 of what it takes you to buy a bottle of water, for $1.50, the company who bottles that water can buy anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 gallons of water to put in bottles of water. And then our use of plastics is such that it takes about three liters of water to make a bottle of water that holds one liter of water. You can see how messed up we are. It is a $5 billion drain. Now, I'm not trying to like give some ecological comment here. I'm just talking about common sense. But what's interesting about water is the issue of cleanliness, right? People are worried about, you know, water and what kind of water it is. And it even talks about sometimes in Europe, like you can go to nice restaurants and they will then tell you based on what you're ordering, like we think about fine wine, like, oh, that goes pairs nice with this, this wine or this wine. In some parts of Europe, they'll tell you what kind of water is the best water to drink with your dish because how that water might have been in certain lime areas or certain things. It's all filtered, but like the best kind of alkaline levels based on the water you might want. You're thinking, that sounds snobby to me. But what's interesting about water is we think about water, nobody wants to drink water that makes you sick. Water that makes you sick is not water you want to repeat repeatedly drink. You, you want clean water. In fact, I've been in parts of the world where you don't drink water. You, you drink soda because water is not an option for you. If you drink anything there, even a bottled water, you don't, test, you, don't, you don't trust it because it could basically be local water that got put into a bottle and got the cap resealed back on as if it had never been popped before. It all comes down to what is the source of that water. Friends, it's the same way with the idea of hope. Hope is an abstract idea for many people that's like a virtue to appreciate, a desire to want to have and emulate. But the question is, where does it come from? Where is hope really originating from that gives a person a level of confidence? Well, Zechariah says here in the text, the hope that he is looking towards is from the God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. What I think is significant here is what, is, what Zechariah is acknowledging is that his hope came from God. Friends, let me ask you a question tonight. Where does your hope come from? Where's the source of that? The provision of that? Another book I've been reading recently, and it's not an audio book, it's a book I've been reading, is a, a book that deals with atheism. It talks about worldviews. 
and evolutionary worldviews and atheistic worldviews and how do we have sources of identity and confidence and security when we don't believe in a deity? And who is this God? And the truth is you can't find meaning and any true understanding of morality apart from deity, a belief in a God that exists who creates that. Well, friends, Zechariah says something very importantly here. This is a God who provides salvation, a God who provides redemption. He has visited and redeemed his people. So the first lesson about hope is that it has a source. It has a source. The second lesson Zechariah wants to teach us about hope is that hope is historic. Hope is historic. Look at verse uh, 71, what it says here. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us. This is important to understand about hope, that it is rooted in something prior to any present circumstance. Zechariah is in the middle of a time in Israel's history where they honestly feel like they have been abandoned by God. Let me just give you a sense of why that is. Because their country is occupied by basically our equivalent today, uh, terrorists, who have come into their country and are ruling over them, these, this Roman occupation, and rule over them and determine the laws and the taxes for the country that goes to fund that Roman occupation. While they're still living within that, they feel like God has abandoned them in ways that they thought for sure he would not have forgotten. Furthermore, as I've said in the past, it has been hundreds of years since any prophet has been raised up by God to speak to God's people. There's something profound here that we should recognize. What's so profound is that Zechariah looked far enough back as the source by which he could find his hope than just presently what he was living in within a relatively short amount of time. His sample size was large. Our sample size is often small, which explains why we feel like we don't have any hope because of the immediate circumstance we're living in. Let me, let me help you just understand how a person ends up in a position of despair and hopelessness. I often believe it begins with expectations. Th think this out with me. Track with me here. Uh, despair and hopelessness often begins with expectations. Expectations are not inherently wrong. Desires are not inherently wrong. This doesn't make you a bad person at all. Every one of us has desires. We have expectations, uh, things that we're wanting to see. That's understandable. These come from yourself or perhaps by others. Somebody has told you they're going to do something. Somebody has said that they're going to deliver something. They have committed themselves to you. Or by your own acknowledgement, something you've expected would take place. But then these expectations are not met. When these expectations are not met, you are understandably disappointed. I am as well. I am as well. 
but the expectations resume. You pick back where you left off. I hope it will happen now. I, I believe this will take place now. They've told me that they will not do this again to me. They promised me that they were sorry and they will not make that same mistake. And so expectations resume. But then those expectations are not met again. They're not met again. So now we move from disappointment to discouragement. Discouragement comes. Expectations come back yet again. But this time, they're married to doubt. I'm hopeful that this will take place, but I'm doubting if it will. I'd love to see this take place, but I don't know. So now what seemed like a bright sunny day of optimism feels like a cloud has been forming in your day, in your relationship, in your experience. And sure enough, whatever you're expecting didn't happen according to the expectation. And after finally walking through a long haul of disappointment into another long haul of discouragement, you finally arrive at despair. Hope has been replaced with doubt. Despair and depression set up shop now in your human heart. Where some people live for decades. For decades. That's a real human biography for many people. But what we see here is something significant. What we see in the text, look with me again in verse 71. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Now he's not talking about his dad and grandfather. He's talking all the way back. He's talking hundreds of years earlier. To remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Why is this significant? Because we can see here in the text that Zechariah found hope in a God that was going to deliver, sooner or later he was going to deliver as God had promised. Now why does this matter? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, as a Christian, I don't know if everybody here is a Christian, but for those of you who are Christians, have you ever wanted as a Christian to stop sinning in an area that you have struggled in? And you've asked God to forgive you of that sin. You've read books about that sin. You've talked to people about that sin. You've, you, you've maybe listened to conferences about this, and you maybe read articles about this, and, and yet, for more times than you can count, you're back before the Lord going, Lord, am I even a Christian? I feel like this sin is my biography. I feel like there is no hope here. I, I feel like maybe I am the small print on your word that there's victory over sin. And I've tried all the formulas. I've, I've done all the things. I've, I've done all the good acts. And I still feel like there is no hope because this sin is still defining me and it's overwhelming me and I'm, I feel dominated by it. I've got to imagine somebody here feels that way. I have felt that way. 
I have felt that way. Perhaps it's not the sin. Perhaps it's another relationship. Maybe it's the lack of relationship. God, why do these people have boyfriends or girlfriends and I don't? Why are they married and I'm not? Why are they having children and I'm not? Why are their children walking the Lord and mine or not? Why is this person growing in such a way that's reflecting in mine? Is not God, are you trying to punish me in some sort of indirect way? Maybe I'm in your kitchen a little bit too much tonight. But I mean to speak honestly and accurately from the Bible to say that these groanings, these longings, these frustrations of the human heart are not unique to you. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. So to be tempted to not have hope and instead despair makes you normal. And what Zechariah is doing here is he is going back far in time to be reminded that God promised, and if God promised, then he will provide. It is a historic promise. So verse 72 is teaching us to adjust our expectations and our timeline of the expectations. Hope is hard to find when you're only looking in one small window of time in your life based on a certain set of expectations. But you look up and you look wider and you see God is doing a work. The third thing Zechariah teaches The first being that hope has a source. Secondly, that hope is historic. The third thing is that hope has a purpose. Hope has a purpose. Look at verse 74 and verse 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let me give you an example of someone who felt as if they were a people who had no hope, as if they did not know that. In 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. was imprisoned after leading a nonviolent civil rights march. He dreamed, his dream of not having these issues of racism seemed so far off. And he was arrested for a, a nonviolent civil rights march. And to make things worse, eight white pastors wrote a letter that was published in the newspaper, in the Birmingham newspaper, by these eight white pastors that were liberal pastors. They, they weren't believing the Bible like you and I would believe the Bible. They were eight white pastors, and they were criticizing Martin Luther King for his approach. So he responded with his famous letter from an Alabama jail. A letter which included this section. I want you to hear what Martin Luther King Jr. writes. He says, we have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace towards gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, 
and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and you find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and your mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. Now you would think such a letter of which I've given you only a sample would only end with despair. To go through that. To speak of that. And yet, that's not how that letter ended. And that letter was written before his I have a dream speech. So the question is, how can the Jews of the day when they're occupied by Roman occupation being overwhelmed, or how can Martin Luther King and, and these people who were just overwhelmingly oppressed, how can they go through such despairing circumstances and still have hope? Because of what was understood in the Bible, God has a purpose, and he has a plan that's often mysterious. Martin Luther King understood this, and we understand this today, that our deliverance is for a purpose. You notice what Zechariah says in Luke chapter 1, going back to our text in Luke chapter 1, verse 40, 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear 
and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's vision for our future, I submit, is far greater than any vision we otherwise would come up for ourselves. His desire for us to live in obedience to him, to understand what it's like to live without fear, a lesson that we talked about last week, is true liberty, true freedom. To be able to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. His teaching, what Zechariah is saying here as a response to the birth of his son John, that hope has a purpose. Fourth lesson about hope. Not only does hope have a source, not only is hope historic, not only does hope have a purpose, but fourth, hope redirects our ambitions. Redirects our ambitions. Now, notice what he's doing here in verse 76. He's talking about his son, who's going to be known as John the Baptist. He says in verse 76 and 77, and you, child, the kid's not even born yet. He's just talking prophetically about him. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, listen, as parents, parents are often tempted. You don't have kids, I'll teach you this as a parent, and then you'll amen it later if God has you to be a parent. As parents, we're often tempted to find our identity and our children and what they've accomplished with their life. So we want to groom them to have this great life. Uh, there's a, another book that I'm reading titled Love That Boy. It's a fascinating book written by a uh, journalist. Uh, for He covered the White House for about 20 years for the Associated Press. He's not a Christian, um, but he learned, he has two daughters and a son, and he has uh, his son, when he learned when his son was 12 years old, not until he was 12, they learned that his son has Asperger's. Asperger's is on a, on a mild end of the autism spectrum, and, and he uh, felt discouraged and despairing as a father that he, one, did not learn this earlier enough about his son, and that two, that the plans he had for his son were not going to be filled like he had hoped them to be. His dad loves sports. He as a dad loves sports. He had hoped his son would love sports. His son was completely disinterested in sports. And a lot of this process and what he writes in this book is the things that parents want for their kids. They want successful, they want happy, and they want accomplished versus the things that parents should instead want for their kids. And it's fascinating to read even as somebody who myself is a Christian, reading somebody who's not a Christian, to go, there are things in here I think some even Christian parents should understand. Now, Zechariah, the guy we're reading about here. Zechariah comes from a religious family. He is of the Levitical family. He is serving as a priest. And you can imagine somebody who comes in the background, you have high expectations for your son. Right? You kind of hope that your son is going to do some things. You have a kind of idea like your son's going to make you proud. Uh, but he is told that his son is going to do things unlike his father in a different sort of way. And this prophecy that's been given, this word that came from the angel earlier in chapter 1, that then now Zechariah is saying himself, is that his son, who's going to be a prophet, will go before the Lord and prepare his ways and give a knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now let me just, let me just put this into you for two perspectives of why this is significant to redirect our ambitions. Um, Zechariah's son is about to be a very unpopular person when he grows up. 
want our kids to have friends. We want our kids to have friends and invite their friends over. We want our kids to like, you know, like us and like them and have friends and be liked. And we don't want, we kind of would break our heart to see our sons sort of sitting, or daughters sitting at the lunch table by themselves. John the Baptist is about to have, as he grows up in his adulthood, a ministry of loneliness, of rejection. In fact, his great story will be, he'll end with his beheading. I don't know a single parent who has that desire, that ambition for their child's future. But Zechariah is saying, whatever the Lord's will is for my child is what I want my will to be here now. The second thing that's profound that should not be missed, that hope redirects our ambitions, is you'll notice what's being said here. What's he going to be doing? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is important because John is going to teach people something that I think today, 2,000 years later, a lot of us still haven't yet remembered. You can have hope today even if the circumstance you're living in does not change. If your hope is not ultimately based on your circumstance changing, but based on your sins being forgiven, which you can have through faith alone in Christ alone. The problem comes when we hear the gospel and we're like, that's good, but I need a girlfriend. That's good, but we still haven't had a kid yet. That's good, but I still have not gotten a raise at work. That, that's good, but honestly, I'm still not where I'm at economically and financially or where I wish I could be at this point. That's, that's good, but I still haven't found out whether or not my chemotherapy is working with my cancer because that becomes the source of my hope, the ambition of what I'm ultimately hoping for. And what's happening here is Jesus is saying, listen, I came to deal with your greatest problem. Your greatest problem it's not your physical sickness. Your greatest problem is your spiritual sickness. You are plagued with something that only I can cure. Through his life, death, and resurrection. So hope redirects our ambition so that we can, not as an act of denial, but as an act of reality, find our joy, find our peace, even in the midst of difficult circumstances because he has already addressed what has been our greatest problem, the forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of our sins. And that's what John's gonna be teaching him, that's what Zechariah was declaring, and that's what Jesus would be preaching, that he came for the sick. So hope redirects our ambitions. Last and le not, definitely not least, number five, hope believes in the goodness of God. Hope believes in the goodness of God. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'll ask you a question, perhaps you've been asked this already before this year. What do you want for Christmas? 
what do you want? You ask some children that question, and it can blow your mind. You ask some children that question, like, is your mom and dad like a millionaire? Like, that you just going that big? Like, I'm looking for a new car. Oh, wow, okay. Okay, now like a shirt at TJ Maxx. You want a car. Okay, that's, that's a bit over the top. We're talking Hot Wheels, or we're talking like real things? Or some people can be more modest, like, honestly, I'm just, I'm just looking for a new pair of shoes. I could go for a new pair of shoes because my shoes I've had for the last two years, they got holes in them. I could probably rock a new pair of shoes. When you ask what you want for Christmas and these answers that you can give can kind of reflect what we're looking for. Well, what we meet here is a God who when he gives, he gives big. He gives big. And he does this as an expression of his character. Look at what it says here. We get a God who is merciful, who cares for those who are in darkness, who guides us into peace. What it says there in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. See, what's so amazing about salvation is not only what it provides, salvation, but also what it shows, the God who provides it. He is a tender, merciful God who shows us in such amazing, merciful ways things that we could never have seen apart from the gospel. But that's exactly what we're seeing here in the scriptures of who this God is. It's not often immediate that hope comes. It's not often physical that it comes. But it comes in a way that shows mercy to give light to those who sit in darkness. Discouragement and despair to be replaced with encouragement and the warmth of the love of God because of the mercy of God, which ends in verse 79 with the peace of God. You know, oftentimes is the alternative to true hope. Often the alternative is denial. Denial. Last year I was doing some work uh, on our house before we moved into it. Uh, some work would be a very modest word. Um, and I had some people over helping me, and they had left, and I was uh, throwing some stuff in a dumpster, and I had taken a kind of a rotten piece of sheet of plywood and gone to throw it in this dumpster, and as I was stepping into the dumpster, um, I busted my shin against this kind of cluster of rocks that we had thrown from the ground into the dumpster, and um, it split open my shin. And I didn't know that. I just thought I hit my shin, you know, whatever. But I started to feel something wet in my boot and uh, realized, oh, that's blood. And uh, I thought, man, this is so inconvenient to have like a split open shin right now because this group that just left that day was coming back the next day. We're about to get it done again. We're going to go hard for another hard day of work. And uh, this is inconvenient. And I looked at my split open shin and I thought, no problem. I'm going to grab some gauze, grab some packaging, tape this thing up. It'll kind of clot. It'll stop bleeding. We'll be fine. So I went over. I wasn't living in my house at the time. I went over to a neighbor's house, and I said, hey, do you have any gauze? I need something. I've got to cut my leg open. And they looked at my leg, and they said, you're going to go get stitches, right? I was like, I wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> and they said, well, that's, that's bad enough. You should go get stitches. I mean, that's time. That's money. That's, uh, yeah. And I keep looking. It's not stopping bleeding. It's not stopping bleeding. I'm like, okay, I should probably go get stitches. So I go get stitches. And, uh, and then they tell me, like, the curse, which is, okay, now that you got stitches, you can't have your leg get wet or sweat for, like, a week. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm in a house right now with no AC. It's all we do is sweat. 
And I said, well, it's, I was telling you what you're going to do, because if you don't, it gets infected, you've got a bigger problem. So I kind of grumblingly said, okay. And did the best I could, and by God's grace, it did not get infected. Here's what ends up happening, I think, a lot of times with our life. We go through rough circumstances, and we're struggling with those circumstances. They, they cause pain. It, they're not just discomforting, they're actually painful. But instead of stopping and dealing with them, we want to deny that we're feeling that pain. So sometimes people will choose to deny it through the use of alcohol or other drugs. Or maybe it's just pleasure. Or maybe it's busyness. They work hard to keep themselves from stopping and staring at the mirror of their life. They're denying what they're really feeling because to stop and stare at it is too hard for them. But what ends up happening is that approach to such pain is basically doing the same thing I was tempted to do with my gauze, which is just to cover it and act like it'll be fine. Only for it to get infected and create more problems. Well, what we see here in the Bible is that God understands our pain is even deeper than we're perhaps ready to accept it ourselves, and he sends nothing less than his son to deal with it. And what's so amazing about Jesus is that he would go through the very life that we are struggling with ourselves. That before he was crucified, he was born in the humblest of ways. And after he was born, he lived in the most mysteriously rejected ways. In a way that none would even consider him. And he was rejected by his family and friends. He was tempted in every way like we were, as Hebrews says. And yet he did not give in to that. So we're not called to live a life of denial. We're called to accept the reality of a fallen world and the reality of the solution that Christ is in coming to save that world from its sin. What I want us to see when we consider the life of Christ is not only the amazing words being spoken by Zechariah of John and then Jesus, and what Jesus would do is God was saving his people from their sin, but also to see it in Jesus' ministry. What Jesus did and how he served and how he cared for people. I mean, think about it. Blind men and hopeless criminals and no-name fishermen and the sinful and the shamed and the, the paralyzed and the, the social lepers and the, the women of a bad reputation and the demon-possessed and the, the misfit and the out-of-place and the people who seemingly had no hope were people that God specialized in giving hope to. And I want us to not only realize that, I want us to speak that truth to other people. That we would see the hope in Christ's first coming and have that same hope and that promise of his second coming to come. That he will return again for his people and judge the world according to his righteousness and all those who are in him through faith alone because of grace alone for no other reason than for his glory alone, will have eternal hope. If that's not where you're at, then I challenge you tonight where you sit right now to surrender your life to Christ so that you might have the hope of that forgiveness. And ask him to forgive you of your sins and commit your life to him. Let's pray together.
God, help us to find hope in a hopeless world. God, give us hope as you give us this family of God. God, we have hope in the eternal security in Christ. God, we have hope of your daily care for us. We have hope of finding satisfaction in you. We have hope in the midst of our trials, as long and as painful as sometimes they feel like. God, we have hope because of our true riches in Christ, your Son. Hope in your Son's future return and reign. Hope of an eternity and fellowship with you, God. Hope of being like Christ, our Savior. Not only in this life, but the life to come. Hope of rest, eternal rest. God, help us now to live with that hope and invite others to know of that hope in you as well. May we be the people that believe that, live that, and lovingly teach others that as well. In Christ's name we pray.